and welcome to the Act Natural podcast. I am your host, Brian Middleton. I am Heather Middleton. I'm Janelle Sunshine. And I am Evelyn Gould. Welcome, Evelyn. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us. Could you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us um, what your connections with uh, ACT and, and mental health is? Uh, sure. I This is my least favorite part of all of the things. <laughs> I <understand. laughs> and I don't know. It's like my learning history has made talking about myself very aversive. <laughs> but I will say, what do I, I think it's to do with, honestly, to do with vulnerability and I was talking with Julia Feebig, I don't know if you know her, but the other day about culture and Northern Ireland, which is where I'm from. So I'd start by saying I'm from Northern Ireland and I feel like that culture is very much, basically you don't get told you're brilliant all the time and how amazing you are and that you can do anything you can. <laughs> it's like not a very much a culture of don't think you're better than anyone else. So I think I find it hard. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sort of spiraling on that a wee bit this week, but I'm from Northern Ireland. Um, I am a behavior analyst and I am primarily a clinician. I've been a clinician for around 20 years in various roles. And I also keep a foot usually in the research world, but I'm not really an academic. Uh, that's My imposter syndrome shows up big time in that area, but I am interested in research. And I'm particularly, you know, through my path of working with families, um, really gravitated towards ACT and language-based interventions um, because I was noticing that my EIBI training um, was amazing and I saw amazing things happening with the kids that I was working with, but I was really struggling with how, how to work with parents effectively and how to train staff effectively and how do I talk to these very language, very much verbally able humans every day that I work with and how do I show up to the suffering that's there and how do I make space for the pain and that comes along with doing hard stuff like parenting a kid on the spectrum or um, not, I mean, not that that's everyone's experience, but the families that are coming to me and asking for help, um, we're having a hard time. Um, how do I help the RBTs and the people in the field on the ground who are also showing up every day and really, really caring about their work and also, finding it really hard and for me too so I kind of gravitated towards ACT um, early on in my career and have sort of stayed in that realm and also now have a foot in the psychology world too um, and I now am more I have certainly a lot of clients um, a lot of autistic identifying or neurodiverse clients but they also have mental health issues which is why I'm there and they are struggling with anxiety OCD that's my specialism um unrelated kind of issues um and some of them have depression and other things going on too but uh that's kind of the gist of where I'm at I, I still very much work with families I do a lot of parent work and I primarily still work with teens, children, and young adults. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I'm a cat person. So I'm a cat <laughs> lady, crazy cat lady. Uh, I live in Los Angeles with my partner. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested also in social justice and um, equity and ABA and uh, 
compassionate care and things like that. So lots of things I could say. I don't I, know. I see a lot of good stuff that you put up on, <laughs> yeah. on uh, the, the groups that focus on um, behavior analysis reform and, and also, you know, teaching more about ACT and stuff like that. And I really love all that work that you do. It's, mm-hmm. it's very much needed. It's the, it's the next step in the civil rights movement, in my opinion. Absolutely. All the work with um, you admin act for ABA practitioners. So listeners, if, if you've not come across that group yet on Facebook, Evelyn is an, an admin and they do a lot of great stuff, post wonderful resources um, that host free CEs. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, thank you for taking that time to share that vulnerability. I'm sorry. It's not the, your favorite part. I, I regularly feel that, that too, that, that kind of, for some reason, the things that I've been saying have been resonating and I'm willing to be loud. But then when people start asking me about me, I get a little bit like, well, yeah. like yeah. when my birthday comes around, it's, it's kind of the same thing. My birthday kind of always got, uh, overshadowed by Thanksgiving. And so I just got used to it being a, a small thing. Um, and, and so when people make a big deal out of it, I'm always like, you could just say happy birthday and leave. You don't have to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> type thing. So like, uh, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from with that and, and, and that not being the most comfortable thing, but really appreciate that you taking that time to do that. Mm-hmm. I think in our field, it's it's very difficult to maybe have that confidence within yourself that maybe it doesn't matter if you had mm-hmm. the largest ABA uh, slash ACT group that, that Evelyn was talking about, feelings of imposter syndrome. But I, I feel like you could put so much beautiful stuff out there and then feel like I'm never going to be the smartest in the room. I'm never going to to know as much as this person does. And in our field specifically, I think that there's a lot of competition that that's put out there or even feelings of going to this conference. Um, I, I have feel confident in my presentation, but oh my goodness, this person is speaking right before me. So what are people mm-hmm. going to think of me after? Um, I, I find myself doing that. And even <laughs> with publishing, um, I, I've, I've done some, I know, good things in the field, but that imposter syndrome is just chaining me uh, that, that I, I feel so scared to put my, my work out there and put myself out there for fear of what others will think. Well, Heather just needs to close our door real quick. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Generally, I, I, as you're talking, like what I'm, what I'm thinking is why is it that we don't, why are we not enough? <laughs> because every person, I, I'm not worth more than anyone else in our field, really. And um, every person has value and every person has, uh, has, you know, a perspective that's important and could speak on any topic, especially with like, let's just take ABA, for example. I don't see why any person who's part of that community has something to say about that community. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I think there's just, that's what I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking, why is it that we have this need of never, this need to like achieve, 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 and what that means. And there's a very fixed idea about what worth is and what makes you worthy. And yet what you're pointing to is the fact that it doesn't seem to work very well <laughs> because no matter what you achieve, you still have the same feeling of like, I'm a complete fraud. I actually don't know anything. And this, these are my thoughts showing up that show up, but like, I don't know what, the hell I'm doing um 
I don't know how to help this person. I, I everyone thinks I know something I really don't. And you know, it's it's interesting to me because really everyone has value. Everyone is no only you know everyone's unique you know everyone has a very very unique learning history Brian you're talking about history before but like nobody we can't know anyone's complete learning history and everybody's learning history is totally unique mm-hmm. so everybody has a unique perspective and something to bring and yet we have this really fixed idea about who gets to talk and who should have a voice and who ha- who's whose voice is worth anything um and should we who should who should we listen to and it's a real it's really problematic I think uh, causes a lot of pain. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because the um, the next podcast I'm putting out for my O Behave podcast is actually talking to a theorist named Maximus from uh, from uh, the Netherlands who who's proposing an, an addition to verbal operants, um, talking about this thing, this who gets mm-hmm. to speak and that sort of stuff. And don't want to spend too much time on that, but that. I've noticed that that when that attitude is not present, when you're with a group of people where you feel like you can be a part of the conversation and nobody, no one person has to speak, but no one person has to be the speaker mm-hmm. that it's, it's like an untapping potential and everybody gets excited. Even if one person is not actively participating, like, you know, maybe one of the other listeners or speakers looks to them and says, you want to say anything like, no, this is great. This is gold. <laughs> Let's go. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I love finding and cultivating is that environment where we can be together and talk about whatever the thing is without worrying about who is better than whom yeah. and, and being a part of something together. Um, and to, to, briefly go back to what you were talking about with, with feeling likely you're, you're not worthy to speak. A lot of that I think is because we <clears throat> unintentionally or sometimes even intentionally reinforce that. I know that before I was uh, a BCBA, a lot of times when I post something, I had to be very careful because there've been a few times when somebody would be like, you have no authority to speak on this because you're not a BCBA. And I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> and, well, and also, Brian, we don't value, I was thinking we don't value listening behavior. It's like speaking, speaking, speaking is valued over listening. And of course, we know that we need listeners. You can't, you know, speakers useless without the listener. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings leaving getting the the BCBA letters uh, behind your name. So Brian, I know how hard you worked for that. And for me, the exam did not come easily for, for my, I, I felt it three times. I'm open about that. That's not how I function. I'm better in the field, not, not test taking, <laughs> but I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to get this confidence when I get, get those letters behind my name. And then I'm going to have all the confidence <laughs> in the world and I get it. And it's maybe I need my PhD and then I'll feel a little bit more confident. And actually Celia Heyman posted something recently in the do better group about, she feels like she has imposter syndrome. And, and when she gets those letters and to me, that was mind blowing. So I look, I look up to Celia so much and respect everything that she does. And especially with the ABA study group. So just to know like, wow, this person and then Evelyn, you're, you're saying that and you're someone I absolutely look up to in the field of, you know, maybe those letters aren't, Aren't, aren't the key to, to this confidence that we're talking about. So this is very enlightening for me. Mm-hmm. Um, a minute ago, 
and it's kind of along this uh, realm of conversation. Uh, we were talking about the how everyone you know who's in that community has that has a voice and they have those thoughts and they should be able to feel the value in speaking them themselves as well as uh, as as well as you said, Evie, listening and it's that two-sided coin we're both listening and we're both uh everyone is listening and speaking and uh i I see that that really does connect with imposter syndrome which i don't know uh, i know what imposter syndrome is um but for people out there who might not have heard that term before uh for me that is a feeling of uh a feeling of not really deserving uh, the titles I get or the labels I get or the things that I, people say like, I'm good at, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm not really good at that. You know, nobody's like, it's the, oh no, that, that you, you see, I'm an imposter. I'm just pretending right now. And you, you know, what you see is actually real. So I'm just an imposter. You know, what you're seeing, it, it's not really real at all. And so that's, that for me is what that imposter syndrome is. Uh, and I see that not only in the realm of ABA and uh, with families with uh, 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 developmental disabilities with those family members, I see it in uh, with the trauma as well. You know, mm-hmm. if it's, uh, uh, for example, for me, I grew up uh, and I, when I was growing up, I, uh, I forgot how I was going to phrase this. Uh, I had, I experienced sexual abuse and in high school and in college. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I was like looking at other people's stories, I was like, oh, mine's like super mild. (laughs) Mine's not any big deal. Like I'm an, I'm an imposter here, you know, it's like, and I I see that. uh, And so I was denying my own feelings of, of pain surrounding all of the events when, uh, because I saw others experiences as so much worse than my own. And I see that taking place in families with uh, individuals that have developmental disabilities or autism. And uh, there's that really, that denial of feelings the surrounding like, oh man, this is really hard. And then you Mm -hmm. have the guilt about feeling that it's hard because, you know, that's your child or that's your, your, your sibling or your, uh, your very good friend. And, uh, I think that's an important, like an important thing to understand with other people. And it's one of the things that helped me bring uh, more compassion to all of these families that have like those, all of those individual learning experiences Mm -hmm. that make it really, really, It's hard sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I've, I, I can agree that that imposter syndrome challenge comes in there. And like when you have that kind of, to use an act, act term, experiential avoidance, where you're, you're, where you're pushing it away, it, it, it just increases that anxiety in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I love so much about ACT is that it, it gives you tools that help you to be able to have some distance and um evelyn earlier mentioned um i see that i'm having that thought and it's 
it's such an awkward language, but it's so wonderful too, because it's like, it's that, that slight bit of distance to be able to put yourself in context and to diffuse away from, away from the thought enough to be able to observe it instead of being the, I am anxious. This is my anxiety. And I see that a lot. Um, Instead of, instead of being stuck on that, it's I'm I see that I'm experiencing this thing and that actually allows to be able to accept oh well you know I'm feeling vulnerable right now that's okay to feel vulnerable um I I I, oh sorry go ahead oh no no Brian go ahead and finish what you're saying I didn't mean to interrupt you oh you're okay it it was it was kind of a an interesting pause so (laughs) (laughs) um I I I tease workmates because they you know something big is coming up and and they'll say they're nervous and i'm like okay look at me very carefully i'm gonna help you out you're gonna fail (laughs) i say that to them and they go gee thanks and i'm like but really it's true you're gonna like if it's a test you're gonna miss at least one question on on that test or if it's the first time you're working with somebody and you're really nervous you're gonna make mistakes it's okay and, you know, I, I liked to, I like to defuse with humor because I feel like that that's kind of universal and that chuckle relieves some of that anxiety momentarily while not escaping from it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my preferred approach, but at the same time, um, there's been more than one time when people have come back to me and said, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I, and I do that because, that's what I have to do inside myself when I, when I go for a big test or I go to do something that's really challenging and I get that, what if, what if, what if, what if, where I'm living in the future and I'm so full of anxiety on what's maybe going to happen and I can't control that. If, <clears throat> if I can allow myself to accept that the possibility of failure is okay, mm-hmm. then that'll allow me to be able to move forward. Brian, I think that's so beautiful. And there's two, there's like two pieces, I think, with, that you're pointing to an act for me that are hugely important. <laughs> and one of them is this idea of slowing down and being able to notice and distance yourself in the way you're describing from your thought and notice your experience and noticing that emotions and thoughts are can't make you do anything right and that's quite that's a good behavioral way <laughs> behaviorism is showing up right now right thoughts <laughs> and feelings don't cause overt behaviors um but it's amazing how we can when we get fused with thoughts and feelings we we think that they make us do stuff or that we have to do what they say <laughs> um and so what you're describing is this process of being able to detach and choose and notice oh I'm having this thought or I'm having this emotion what what is in there for me it's information it's not a command what is this emotion telling me right now what is it telling Mm -hmm. me about what I care about what is it telling me about what's happening and then I get to have the space to choose I can choose like what direction to move in or how I want to respond in the presence of this thing Um, and I think that's hugely empowering Um, and I see that with my kids and teens that I work with with anxiety that that's really important to them learning anxiety is not a command and it is Mm -hmm. not um, a thing you have to do anything with you can notice it you can make space for it and you can choose what it means Um, you can listen to it and see what it has to say and can you can it go from being avoid a cue to avoid or a cue to do something harmful Mm -hmm. not helpful to a cue to 
values-directed action or a cue for this is an opportunity. I feel anxious. For me, for example, I'm a very anxious person um, in social situations like this. So I'm noticing my own anxiety and thinking, oh, there it is. That's that familiar feeling that shows up when I'm doing something that matters to me. And I care about what these people think. And I can make space for that and still do it anyway and mm -hmm. be kind <laughs> instead of being like, oh, my God, I have to run away or do something like this. <laughs> so I think that's really important. Just that idea that, wow, thoughts and feelings actually don't cause you to do anything. Um, you get to choose. And the acceptance piece there, I love that you're talking about reality acceptance, but just making space for the world as it is. Because if you don't do that, you're struggling and putting your energy into struggling against something that isn't, right? The mm -hmm. idea you're with anxiety, you're struggling against the idea of something and not the actual reality. <laughs> and you can't possibly be effective if you're struggling with an idea um, or not, not actual reality, right? So in order to like have an influence on the present moment, you have to be present. Um, yeah. And to have an influence on the future you have to be present mm -hmm. so I think I think that's that's what I'm thinking as you're talking there but that reality acceptance piece of act and that how that's empowering you to actually take action in the moment to move you in a direction you want to go and also that piece of creating distance or noticing thoughts and emotions as information and not commands um, and not have-tos I tell that to my kids all the time. I'm like, and then like, how are you feeling right now? Is it okay to feel that way? Well, yeah. And I was like, yeah, exactly. It's okay to feel that way because this is information. It's telling you something. That's why it's there. You know, that's mm -hmm. why we developed emotions as a, as a human species yeah. is because emotions and thoughts are not the problem. <laughs> We're not <laughs> cognitives, right? We're not cognitive scientists or cognitive psychologists. We've not thoughts and feelings are not the problem. It's the relationship that you have. It's those relations that are the problem. And that's what we, that's what we're targeting as behavior mm -hmm. analysts. We're mm -hmm. not trying to get inside somebody and fix their thoughts or fix their emotions. We're trying to train, transform the function of those things and change the relationship that they have with them. Mm -hmm. Well, and I regularly, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that, that that leads me to a topic that, that I'm very interested in exploring a little bit more and some dialogue that I've recently had with, with some BCBAs in the field who, who I have so much respect for. And, and we were discussing that, you know, the mindful behavior group and trying to get acceptance and commitment therapy out there. And, and there being, I didn't realize, um, so much resistance in the field from more of the old school and I'm doing my air quotes again <laughs> of these old school CBAs who 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 just don't believe that we are qualified to do something like acceptance and commitment therapy um and I think even for me because I I am newer to to this methodology of of it's something I've known about but of fully diving into it and actually doing the immersion course and, and telling myself, oh, I'm, I'm going to feel really confident when I'm finished with this course. So we'll see how I feel. Then. No, you won't. How to respond to to some of the, the yeah. naysayers of behavior analysts aren't I would love to talk about that. <laughs> um, I'm so interested. Well, honestly, the first thing I would say is to validate that concern because the concerns that they have about is this ABA is is completely valid. Mm -hmm. And 
I have those concerns. I definitely, they're tacting something, right? They're tacting something that they're seeing that's concerning to them. And I, I, I see a, I see act can definitely be practiced in a very non-behavior analytic way. It can hundred percent be practiced as a technology without any functional analysis. <laughs> um, it can be throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping something sticks. It can be a bag of tricks. It can be definitely practiced in a way that is not consistent with ABA. Mm -hmm. um, so I would first of all, like validate those people and say, you know what, you're right. Those are concerns. I'm concerned. I think I believe ACT can be practiced in a way that's consistent with ABA um, and that falls within the scope of practice and fits really nicely and neatly in with what we do every day. And it can also be done in a way that's not okay, that is not behavior analysis and is also not within the scope. Um, so I start there and then I want to encourage people to really think about, well, how can you be sure that what you're doing is consistent with ABA? Like, are you thinking functionally about how words <laughs> or about the words that people are saying? Are you thinking functionally about why, why you're saying what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Are you trying to get inside the person and fix something that's inside of them? That's not ABA. Um, are you trying to change their thoughts and feelings, which is the same as what I've said, but just mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. are you doing? And are you trying to fix their anxiety or their depression, which is something inside of them that's interfering? That's not your business. That's a cognitive psychologist's business. Yeah. Um, so like, are you just, you know, listening to something that somebody says and assuming based on the topography of what they're saying that, oh, they're fused, therefore do diffusion. That's not ABA either. Um, that's topographical analysis. And I don't, I don't feel okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, are you just digging in around in your metaphors book and just randomly firing metaphors that somebody are doing a bunch of exercises? That's not ABA either. Um, we would never, for example, walk into a classroom, see a kid for the first time doing something like hitting somebody and then be like, all right, aggression. I know what the function is like any analysis and then just go into your bag of tricks of like strategies and just be like, oh, I'm going to randomly throw this ABA strategy at this kid. We're going to do this token system. We're going to do this planned ignoring thing. Right. We would never do that. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to see that when people are doing act either. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I hear you also on the flip side that generally there are also people where that is not, they're not actually necessarily well enough informed and they're, they're scared. It sounds mentalistic. They don't like the words. Um, that's okay too. So I'd validate that too, because a lot of people talk about act in mid-level terms, which are not well-defined behaviorally speaking. Um, so we need to be able to, as a field, I think we need to get better at talking about <laughs> unpacking all of what's happening within act from a behavior analytic perspective and really using like understanding the processes in terms of basic behavior principles and really knowing how to talk about that and, and, and train in a way. I also see it being trained in the non-behavior analytic consistent way. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I'm going to stop talking now because I'm taking up all the space, but those are the first <laughs> few things that come to mind. I want to be like, yes, you're right. We should be concerned about that. Um, well, and um, <clears throat> one of the things that I like to point out is that ACT while, while there is a portion of ACT that can be practiced by cognitive behavioral therapists, and that's within their scope of practice. And there's a lot of similar language that's being utilized because of ACT that's CBT and um, ABA 
in in their origins and so it's kind of a marriage of those things while the while that is indeed true um i like to describe act as a self-management tool because that's what it is is you're mm-hmm. learning discrete practicable tools mm-hmm. and i've read a few of the studies that have come back where people self-direct and and practice and and checking on consistency of a practice on, on their own type thing and maybe working, checking in with the group and seeing that the effect was within 5% of similar effect to going to a therapist, mm-hmm. a cognitive behavioral therapist, not a behavior analyst or anything like that. Cause again, not our scope mm-hmm. of practice. And so <clears throat> I like to point out that we get so scared of something outside of our field that we forget that humans love trying to find answers. It's a part of who we are. We love discovery. And those ideas are present everywhere. If you, if you delve into neuropsychology, you will see the explanations for what's happening with reinforcement and extinction and punishment and all those things. And they're using different Mm -hmm. languages. doesn't mean they're different from us. That just Mm -hmm. means using different words. Yeah. And we shouldn't be scared to connect with our peers and work with our peers and engage. And we should, but we should be concerned about going outside of our scope. Mm-hmm. And, and so and competency. So it's both, yeah. it's two things. It's scope of practice and scope of competence. Yes. So those are two separate issues as well, because you can be within your scope and out of competence. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to do some unpacking there in terms of what is our scope as a field and how do we broaden that? Because we should be broadening it. We don't want to just be pigeonholed into autism, but unfortunately mm-hmm. that's where we've ended up. And that's how everyone's competence is generally within that. Mm-hmm. So they don't have business meandering into other things. Like it's not okay for us to be like, behavior is just behavior. And then just think we can go work with anybody. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scope thing is like a different issue. So there's competence and scope. So just sorry to interrupt okay. you, Brian, but just to we can kind of talk about words and function. I mean, you could call it self-management and then is it magically within your scope? I don't know. <laughs> I could mad- I could call it exposure therapy and be like, is it within scope? Only if you're, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a balance, you know, I've yeah. heard people, I've heard this being, you know, people being like, let's call it acceptance and commitment training. And then it, we can say it's our business. And I'm like, you literally just changed a word. Like, hi, what is, what's happened? Like, it's not semantics. Like, you know, this is a bigger issue. So I kind of don't know. That's a whole other discussion we could have. Do we just change what we call things and then say, magically, it's within our scope? I'm not sure. Well, and and I think it's, it's healthy to have this doubt and this conversation, because if we don't have this, then we're more likely to, um, break the trust that we have. Um, yeah. And it's, and, and you mentioned like mm-hmm. that most of ABA focuses or behavior analysis focuses on autism and that's mm-hmm. within our scope, but, uh, and, and especially our competence, but I would argue not, that's not um, <clears throat> because we, we have faulty assumptions uh, sure. relating to that too. So mm-hmm. maybe instead of being super confident, we should be allowing space for that. Am I doing the right thing? And consistently asking that question of, am I doing the right thing? Because, you know, I'm an autistic BCBA and Mm -hmm. I still ask myself, 
every single time I'm doing a program, is this the right thing? Because my experience is my experience. Mm -hmm. That's not the experience of the person. hundred percent. Brian, I do the same thing with every single client, just because I think I'm like OCD, anxiety, autism, knowledgeable, but every client is different. That doesn't mean I'm competent with this particular client, or even I might've been competent last week, but maybe I'm not right now. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. So I hundred percent agree with you that we need to get better at that ongoing process of analysis of competency, maybe functional analysis of competency. <laughs> um, <laughs> Moment to moment, I 100% agree with you. I notice that I have the, the fear, or, or maybe it's not even a fear, just a, an observation of, of something happening in the field. And it does feel that within the last year, and, and Evelyn, may, maybe you have noticed something different, Brian, um, Heather, maybe you all have. I, I feel like from my seat at the table, it feels within the last year that ACT is getting talked about so much more. And, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, the what's the why behind this? So mm-hmm. why is it suddenly getting so popular? Um, it's not something that just came out three, you know, three years ago. Right. That's not what's happening. And and trying to look back at this, we, we're also seeing there's a lot of talk now making room at the table for autistics mm-hmm. to be able to come mm-hmm. and talk about their history mm-hmm. with ABA, um, mm-hmm. the use mm-hmm. of patterns that maybe we shouldn't be using some of these approaches that I know I personally I was using even th- three years ago of, of using escape extinction and, and mm-hmm. planned mm-hmm. ignoring of some practices that now I'm like, wait a second, yeah. um, this isn't something that I would try to do. I think for me personally, I was very desperate to try to remedy of some of my own past history of, cause I was complicit in some of this abuse mm-hmm. for these clients. Mm-hmm. For me, it seemed acceptance, commitment therapy, this could be the light at the end of the tunnel. This could be the key to make things better. I don't know if, if some of the others who are starting to, to reach towards ACT and to get this training, if that's their experience. For me personally, I think it has, it's been a lot with the, the reform that we're trying to see, but then now we're talking about the scope and, and the competency of what are the steps that we take to, to become competent with this and for me, it's it's signing up for this ACT immersion class. But is that enough even for me to say that that I'm an ACT person? I, I don't know. Uh, at what point yeah. do you know that, that I, you are? Generally, I also something that concerns, I 100% agree. I think, I think that part of what's showing up is a greater recognition of clinicians in terms of deficits in their training and supervision. Mm-hmm. And that they do not have what they need to do to work to do their work effectively mm-hmm. or or ethically. Um, so I think that's a huge part of this. It's the recognition of we we don't have what we need, and what what can we fill a hole with? I do worry though about this idea that ACT can fill all all deficits in people's skill sets. That's big worry. It's not like it, we don't just teach the VB map and then add on ACT and be like we're done. Um, I so I am a bit concerned about act people seeing act as a cure all or fill the, fill all the holes, <laughs> um, and I worry that there are some deficits that are foundational in order to practice act in an effective ethical ABA consistent way, behavioral analysis consistent way. 
that there's some deficits there that will prevent people. Well, people will just take this as another thing. This is a big piece, pet peeve of mine. But taking act as a thing to do to people to make them do what you want. Not okay. okay. (laughs) And I see that all the time. It's like, tell me what to do so I can make this parent do what I need them to do or make this kid do the thing. And then almost things like really coercive stuff starts to happen there where people are using values against kids to get them to do, be like, well, do you really want to do that? That's not, that's not your value. And I'm like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> so it just becomes another weapon to use against. I mean, that, I know I'm using strong words here, but that is literally what it feels like when I watch yeah. that. When I see videos of people practicing acting that way, it makes me feel really I mean I'm feeling it right now <laughs> yeah. like this is not a thing that you do to somebody to make them do what you want that is not what this is <laughs> it's like so that worries me um I'm I'm uh, getting riled up now but I, I think there's deficits yes I think people are reaching out because they're noticing they've got deficits but I worry that there are bigger things that need to be in place in order for people not to just take this as another thing to do to people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. I would argue that a big part of that is it's, it's viewing act as this is something that I use mm-hmm. to just help somebody else instead of saying, these are tools that I should apply to myself. Yes. And, and I that's- do it with people. This collaboration needs to be there. It's, it's a collaborative approach it's um non-coercive it should not be coercive and it's about helping other people figure it out for themselves not you teaching them or telling them what to do that is what to me act is all about the other person you creating a context where the other person can thrive Mm -hmm. and they figure it out (laughs) they choose it's all about increasing choice um it's not about and and self-direction like you said self-management brian it's about self-direction and choice and autonomy it's not me coming in with my agenda and being you need to do these things and this is what you need to care about we want the objective is to have people who have access to skills so that they can thrive Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. make them conform and, yes. and that's, that's a big problem that I see in the um, behavior analysis community when it comes to working with not just children with autism uh, spectrum disorder, but also um, other developmental delays is it's about the conformity. And this is the same challenge that I faced when I was a teacher um, is, is conform and fall in line. And, mm-hmm. you know, there to be fair, there are times and places when you need to fall in line, like waiting in line mm-hmm. to go to the, the, the into the movie or to get your food and that sort of thing. So there's definitely skills there, but um, it's it's something I keep saying over and over again. I don't want little robots. Mm-hmm. I want I so, want people. <laughs> right, and Brian, in ACT, this is really important. ACT is about, we think about different rule-governed behavior, right? We don't want to reinforce clients, which is just, doing as you're told that is actually not helpful that gets people really context insensitive in their behavior Um, what we want is to teach tracking which is how do we teach people to choose when something works for them and when it doesn't and notice how their behavior works in the real world in the short term and the long term so the lining up thing how do we teach kids to notice what are other people doing 
oh, I heard this rule, line up to get a ticket. Well, let me try that and see how it works. And what happens if I don't line up? Oh, you don't get a ticket. Oh, okay, so I'll line up in this in this context, that makes sense. But that doesn't mean I always need to line up or follow, <laughs> follow that rule in other contexts. Maybe it won't be helpful to me. So I think that's really, really important. That tracking piece is what we're going for, that choice, that like pick and choose what is going to work in what context for what goal mm. and how do I be flexible with my rules and not just follow rules because the rules are there and do as I'm told. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, I think yeah. where we're talking the values piece comes in of, of how valuable for me. I don't like the movies that much. So <laughs> yeah. in line, it's going to be very and, and is it worth it? You'll be like, yeah, it's not worth it to me. I'm good. <laughs> and that's good because then you don't torture yourself by lining up and then getting a ticket and be like, why did I do that? Absolutely. Now I'm miserable. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. I, I actually had a question for you about this, uh, about that using the act as a weapon and using it as a, uh, a self-management tool, those verses. Mm-hmm. You gave an example of uh, what it looks like as using it as a weapon. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'd love to talk about some examples, like some more specific examples to help make it more relatable to what it would look like in scenarios using it as a, yeah. a self-management tool. So, so going back to the appliance and tracking thing, like I don't want to, anytime I catch myself with a young person that I'm working with telling them about their experience, that is not act. I'm like, uh oh, here I am giving them rules about their experience or telling them what's going to happen or how they're going to feel or anything that I'm doing where I'm teaching them rules, new rules about how they should behave or how they should feel or think. Um, not act so what I want to do instead is to ask cure is to shape curiosity mm-hmm. and shape like well what are you experiencing you tell me about your experience and let's be curious about that and what else you how could you relate to your experience right now what could you do what else might we be able to do but let's try it let's see how it works not me telling you if you do this this will happen but let's try some stuff out and see what happens and can you notice um, the process of that and can you notice Um, the short and long-term consequences does that kind of help so for example um, let me think of an example from this week same with parents as well like I want parents to if I want parents to be independent of me um, and not reliant on me I need them to start noticing how their parenting strategies are working or are not working I can't have them just following my plan me telling them what to do because then they're reliant on me telling them what to do and they also take those rules and blanketly apply them across all contexts where it might not be appropriate or helpful Um, I want them to explore how things work which means that I need to be patient as a behavior analyst and say well I don't know like what why don't you try this and tell me how it works or don't try it and tell me what happens see if you notice what happens Um, And then I want the parent to go away. And also, by the way, if you give people choice to do or not do something, they're more likely to do it. If you tell them you have to do it this way or you're a failure as a parent, basically do my plan. There's no other option. They're most likely not going to do it. (laughs) They're going to really struggle. But if you're like, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work, but I, I think you could maybe try this or don't try it. It's totally fine either way. See, see, if you feel like it, you can do it. And if you don't feel like it, like when you offer that like space, people are more likely to be like, 
hmm, maybe I will try this hard thing. Um, you give them that space to choose and um, they'll self-direct. Um, so I think a parent, the parent, I'm sorry, I know I'm off topic a little from your question, but okay. I think the parent example is a good one where I really want the parent to leave my parent training session and really start to think about or notice what they're doing. I want them to notice what they're doing non-judgmentally because it's not useful if they're starting to beat themselves up and then they just are likely not to do anything different. Um, but just to notice what they're doing and maybe try a few things and notice the impact on their kid, notice how it lines up with their values or not long-term, short-term. I want them being curious and exploring different ways of behaving, like getting that variability and flexibility mm -hmm. and then choosing what works. Um, I don't want them just to do what I say. Um, or to come into session and tell me what I want to hear. That's another problem that I see. And either the parents will start avoiding my sessions or they're coming in and just telling me what I want to hear, but then not doing the plan outside of the session. Mm -hmm. So I, I see all of those things show up when you're very clients focused and so do as of, I say. Yeah. So you're kind of doing um, it where you're, you're modeling that non-judgmental curiosity. Yeah. hundred percent. <laughs> And who am I to be judgmental? I mean, everybody, we're behavioral analysts, right? Everybody's behavior makes sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we think it's the most adaptive, effective way of, of, of solving a problem, but everybody's behavior makes sense. And it's mm -hmm. not for me to come in and just tell a parent, you're doing it wrong. And also, by the way, they probably already feel like that. They've, mm -hmm. They already have stories about how much they're not doing a good job as a parent, how they're not good enough. Um, I, they don't need me to come in and start being like, oh, well, obviously he's doing this because you keep reinforcing it. So stop mm -hmm. reinforcing it. It's like, that is not helpful. <laughs> um, and same and the other goes. cool thing about, oh, sorry, Brian. Go no, ahead. go ahead. No. I, the last thing I want to say is the coolest part about me getting really into this act work with parents is I very, very, I, I swear to God, I very, very rarely have to do explicit behavioral parent training with parents anymore where I'm sitting down and going I, I pretty much never do this okay here's the principle of reinforcement here's negative reinforcement here's ABCs here's how this works antecedents behavior consequences I very rarely have to do that because parents actually really do know what to do when you give them the space to, to choose when you create a context where they're present and they're mindful and they're noticing how behavior is working they're no noticing what's happening and they're not they're able to like respond to what's actually happening in the moment and not to every other thing before that and everything they're thinking and feeling they actually make they actually know what to do <laughs> they know how to parent their kids they really yeah. do I promise you and so when I train these skills and like I help them um, start to be the parent that they want to be and really be present they, they just make good choices. <laughs> like They just like do, they just, they, they are like, yeah, I know he's, I know he's doing this because he feels really upset that I took his thing away. So I'm, I'm going to tell him like, Hey, I know this is really hard. I know you really want this and I really need you to go to school because blah, 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 blah. So I'm not going to give it to you. I promise we'll get it back later. Like they're able to do that stuff without me. I was about to swear there. <laughs> they're able to do that, that stuff, like without me having to teach them about AB, antecedents, behaviors, and consequences of negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement mm -hmm. and DRA and DRO. They don't need me to do that. So it's a lot of work up front for me as a behavior analyst but in the long run, it's a lot less work and the parents are self-directing and they know what to do. So 
And I believe the kids too, my kids too, that I work with also, um, they, they can learn, like they have what they need to thrive and be successful. They don't need fixed. <laughs> they don't need me to come in and like fix them. They just need me to help support that context where they can use what their tools and use mm-hmm. their strengths um, and notice what's going on so they can make more more effective choices, I guess, in the moment as to, as to how they want to respond to stuff. You know, what led me into the behavior analysis field and acceptance and commitment therapy training, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, was the fact that I was a special ed teacher who was working with um, high behavior is what they called mm-hmm. it, kids, mm-hmm. and um, regularly was told that I worked miracles mm-hmm. and I, I have students who are now graduated reaching out to me and thanking me and stuff like that. And that feels really good. Mm-hmm. But um, the important thing that I got from that, the, the reason why I did so well to begin with, with that was that I, I'm pretty good at remembering what it's like to be a teenager and giving them that space of remembering what it's like to go through that stuff because it was hard. And a lot of times we forget that, that experience, or maybe we had a really good childhood didn't have those experiences, which is very rare, but either way, giving them that space. And the reason I moved towards behavior analysis and act was because there were those kids where it was, there was a lot of other stuff going on. And it was really, really rough. And so this was additional tools on my tool belt, um, mm-hmm. my in my toolbox or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, the way that I treat my clients or students, I prefer students because I'm a teacher still. Um, in my mind, I that's, that's a part of who I am, um, or at least that's a part of what I do. Um, so with my students... First and foremost, I always treat them mm-hmm. like the person that they are. And, and then as I need to, I pull out these other tools and, and use them to support and to help. But it always starts there. Um, and and to, to very briefly connect back to the beginning of, of this particular chain of thought, um, one of my favorite books for folks to read if they really want to start using act as a to teach the tools as a as a self-management skill in a in a clinical setting whether it be a cbt setting or an aba setting is um act made simple by dr russ harris Um, and i love that book because it comes with a support group for connecting with other people and asking questions and getting support and help and understanding Um, but i also love that book because from the very get-go, Dr. Harris says, our job is not to tell them what their values are. Our job is not to tell them whether their choices are moving them towards or away from their mm-hmm. values. All our job is, and he's a cognitive behavioral therapist mm-hmm. when he's saying this too. So he's like, all our job is, is to ask them the question ask them to have that curiosity and to, to explore that idea. And if it turns out that you don't agree with that thing, that they're saying that this is moving them towards when you actually think it's moving them the way big deal. Yeah. Their values. And, and you, you focus on 
teaching the skills. And if you revisit and they decide that it's moving them away from their values, then that's their choice. It's not your choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people whose values say that using substances is not okay. And I know people whose values are substances are an appropriate way for me to be able to have a temporary escape or relaxation. And with both groups of people, when they're applying concepts of acts to their life, they're very healthy people. They're very balanced people. And I think they agree. Actually, I would, you know, when I look at stuff like that, Brian, I have to ask, perhaps also they have an aligned value of of taking care of themselves in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So there, those both of those behaviors of taking substances and not taking substances can actually be in the service of the same value. It's true. Um, so often things that look like conflicts are actually not. <laughs> There's exactly. hierarchy there, and um, I think that that as you get skilled with that, um, you can and you're thinking functionally about this, you can start to notice those things. And I see, I, I'm thinking about couples that I work with often come and it seems like well this is I'm parenting like this and that's my value and I'm parenting like this and actually ultimately the parents are really care about the same things Mm -hmm. but you have to be skilled at noticing what they actually noticing the actual values that are present and what they're actually in the place behaviors are in the service of to be able to help those parents notice you're actually on the same page in terms of what you want for your kid and we think you care about safety care about autonomy you care about love we care about these things and you're just trying to get to them in different ways Uh, how can and when you can help them identify the shared value actually there's a lot more understanding that happens and a lot more compassion and a lot more like willingness to work together Mm -hmm. and make space for different ways of doing things people cope with things in different ways um, and the things they are coping with or the values that are there are often the same Um, but you can have more compassion that way I think anyway that's I'm thinking that right now as you're talking that part of our problem, um, I mean, we're in a big mess in America right now, but I, yeah, I hear that. And I think actually me, I get curious. I get curious. I'm like, well, maybe there isn't, maybe they're not so different. Like maybe these people actually are just trying to get to the same place in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that brings it back to the thing you pointed out at the beginning, which is uh, listening. Mm -hmm. It's an important skill. Listening for values is really important. Exactly. Um, and to briefly touch on the, <laughs> the, the problem in America that we're dealing with, um, one of my favorite thinkers outside of, of behaviorism um, is uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Um, he's, a, he's a fantastic social psychologist. I love his work. And I'm reading one of his books and, and a lot of the stuff that he's bringing up are basically act parallel stuff. And it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I love that Dr. Haight has done is um, propose um, an idea of moral foundations theory and how maybe we're talking past each other and, and we're not seeing each other's moral values we're speaking in different languages even though we're using the same language and and that relates heavily to to values and act and and those sorts of things and that skill of learning to listen because i've seen people with seemingly diametrically opposed political views sit down and 
there was some facilitation that had to happen, but these people who would normally be screaming at each other with all caps online um, <clears throat> and accusing each other of, of the most heinous things when they sit down and they actually talk to each other and there's a little facilitation to identify those values, all of a sudden they realize that they're more in agreement than disagreement mm -hmm. and that they have those common values. And the th things that they don't share in common are incidental. Mm -hmm. They're not oh, that big of a deal. Well, and there's the experiential. I mean, we we could get into a whole thing about experiential avoidance because fear-based oh, yeah. behavior as well. And um, and of course, on the on the flip side of values is all the avoidance and fear and pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people feel under threat, they do all kinds of defense moves. Um, so I, I think we can't really talk about values without acknowledging the flip side of the coin, <laughs> which is the fear-based pain and suffering and all the stuff that shows up whenever your values are actually under threat, mm -hmm. right? So there's a, so anytime you see a strong emotion showing up or a strong opinion showing up, there's absolutely a value at stake for that person, which is why they're engaging in that very defensive emotion-driven behavior. <laughs> so, you know, um, I'm, I, I'm not, I guess what I'm, I guess what's showing up for me right now is I think it's really important that we make clear that we're not saying that, um, that we're not being blind to the suffering that's mm, there and true. that oppression, for example, privilege and oppression are, are what we're talking about here. And that doesn't make that, you know, we're not, what we're not saying, or it's important to me to say, I'm not, I'm not saying that act can make everything live in harm, everybody live in harmony and, oh, right. you know, let's just connect on the values. We all just have the same values and ignoring the fact of the destruction that's happening and the oppression that's happening and the, the civil rights violations and all of those things. Um, but what we are saying is that humans um, struggle and when their values are at stake or they get really far removed from what's important, they can engage in very problematic behaviors and very selfish behaviors that are very much based on the, I don't like this, make this go away right now. <laughs> um, and, oh, and, and, to, and to say also what showed up for me was the thought that, and some people capitalize on that, right? Mm, some yeah. people for their own personal gain. And again, I'd probably say, well, if they're really behaving that selfishly, they're probably very removed from what really matters, but whatever. They, for their own personal gain, will capitalize on the fear <laughs> and the avoidance and the pain and the, all of that stuff. Um, and they're not values driven. Well, and yeah. um, so to go with that, um, you, acknowledging those things that have happened is is a part of acceptance. Um, so very poignant case to me and any listeners here mm -hmm. who are listening and they're they're not comfortable with behavior analysis or ABA because of bad experiences mm -hmm. that you have had. Um, <clears throat> first off. Screw the idea of not all ABA. That's that's not appropriate because that's like, not all lives matter. Yeah, yeah. like uh, it's it, I I completely reject that concept, yeah. and and the way that I put it is I am responsible. It's it's taking total responsibility. I am responsible for the things that have happened in behavior analysis. I'm new to the field. I've only been in the field for about three years, but, and, and so 
you know, I, sh- I shared this with a, a friend and that friend was like, well, you're not responsible for what happened in the eighties and nineties, or you're not responsible for what's happening in a different center where they're not using trauma informed care and those sorts of things. And I'm like, no, no, that's not true. I am I responsible. Right. I am responsible for it because if I'm not responsible for it, then mm. that is experiential avoidance. <laughs> I am mm-hmm. trying to say, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that other people are doing this and I'm going to pretend that that it's not a thing because I'm not mm-hmm. doing it. And mm-hmm. the reality is, is that no, I am fully mm-hmm. responsible because I am a part of this community. And if I'm not responsible, then I don't have the, the drive, the value mm-hmm. to stand up and speak yeah. up and say, mm, stop, this has to end. This is 100%. not okay. And, right. and, and um, I have no drive to be, well, maybe I have a small drive to be um, vocal about these things. And Mm -hmm. the same thing goes for um, any experience that we've had, because I have, I've experienced bullying, Mm -hmm. Um, being autistic, growing up autistic. I've experienced bullying as a child, as a teenager, and as an adult. I have, I've experienced gaslighting. I've experienced Mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, um, all the, all the fun fun air quotes there, trauma that comes with all of that. And yes, I have experienced that victimization. I've been a victim of of those things. But at the same time, I have to be responsible for myself. And so I look back and I go, was I also doing those things? And instead Mm -hmm. of saying, well, I did them because this was what was happening to me. I go, no, I did them. And regardless of the context, that wasn't okay. But I accept that that happened and I'm moving forward. I'm moving towards the values that I have. And the values that I have is a fair and equitable society where people are included and the voices are heard. Mm-hmm. And then people can be in a place where they can be safe and process and grow without the need to try to avoid those experiences. Um, it, it resonates with me, um, the, the idea that ACT has taught, and it's, I actually had that thought before I experienced ACT, that life is a pain. There's, pain is involved with life. It's, it's a default component to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep coming back to this, but be, I feel like this is important. We can't avoid pain, but we can avoid suffering but not by avoiding suffering and by accepting the pain. (laughs) And um, when I first started working out, I hated it because it hurt. I didn't like it. I didn't want to keep going because it hurt. It was so bad. And then I learned how to differentiate between the hurt of injury and the hurt of the the pain of growth. And, and I've learned how to embrace that pain of growth. Mm -hmm. Um, and to see it as, as a, a differenti- differentiated, to discriminate, I guess you could say, in a behavior analyst yeah. term. <laughs> no, I love this so much. This is such a good metaphor for ACT. It's like, how do you teach people to trans- transform the function of certain kinds of discomfort into opportunities and growth, but also to be able to recognize when something is actually wrong? Like, when is your body and your mind telling, like, when are you ta- when is your, are your thoughts and your emotions telling you, like, no, this is like not okay right now. I need to change something. Like I need mm-hmm. to problem solve versus this is a place of growth and I need to feel this. 
So I love that, Brian. I really yeah. like that metaphor. It is, it is a really good metaphor. It's something I struggle with personally. Is that differentiation? <laughs> Literally, and <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I, uh, yeah, I have that uh, the habit of like usually I push through things because that's usually I am going to be okay in the end. Um, but then there are those occasions where I'm like. Whereas I try and push through and then suddenly I'm breaking down on the floor crying. I'm like, I should have probably taken a break at that moment in time because I didn't recognize that this, that, that those, those feelings I was experiencing were different. This there's those feelings where it's like, Oh man, I'm scared, but I can still do this. I could try. And then there's those feelings of, I am so tired. I just can't do this right now. I need to take a break. And I have a really hard time with like, and Brian, when you're talking about social justice and you too, Heather, in the terms of social justice within our community, for example, we have to learn, people need to learn how to sit with that discomfort that is about growth and change and mm-hmm. responsibility um, because we can't grow otherwise. If people are just defending themselves against anything that's uncomfortable, I don't like that, then we're just going to have more of the same. It's impossible. It has to, people have to be uncomfortable for growth to happen. Um, or even threatening, I, yeah. threatening people who <laughs> yeah. are open about mm-hmm. uh, I've been complicit in, in this type of a abusive history and and wanting to to punish that person for mm-hmm. being honest with this has been my lived experience. This is mm-hmm. this is what happened to me, and I'm I'm calling it out. I'm I'm recognizing mm-hmm. it. I'm no longer going to to engage in this type mm-hmm. of behavior. I want to move forward. Um, I'm seeing some of that as well as, as people wanting to punish that yeah. kind of behavior and the, and the person mm-hmm. for even being honest about that. So mm-hmm. but I think we still have a lot of, of growth. That, that you we think, need. you think, you think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we are, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun and interesting to be like, to have feet outside of ABA and to realize what well, also gives you perspective on how, problematic it's a bit depressing to be honest but it's also cool um to see how backward we are actually as a field compared to the efforts that are going on in other areas and um but also I guess it gives me hope that we can get there but that we have to we are gonna have to do so much more work like so much more work and one of the things that like, for example, in the OCD world that I love about that world and the IOCDF is that lived experience is is so valuable. It's so valued there and so respected. And like at the conference, people from within the OCD community, including teens and parents and adults, have voices there there's literally tracks (laughs) at the conference and they can go to your talk they can go to my talk they can also I can go to their talks like but there's panels and all kinds of input and many of the prominent people who are featured doing training are sufferers or Mm ex-sufferers however they define themselves um, and people with OCD and they are not lesser than and it really like just I love I wish that our field could do that and stop talking about people like autistic community as lesser than and and they aren't they can they may get defensive at that I swear people will be like that's not what I say I'm like but every time you are like I'm the BCBA and you're talking about autistic people you are doing that yep. you are absolutely 
drawing a line between yourself and the community that we work with. And there's a power dynamic there. Um, and it's implied. It's implied every day. Every post I see on freaking Facebook, it's implied. And that's hugely, hugely problematic. And I think until we get out of that space, I don't know how we're going to do better, honestly. Um, well, I've got good yeah. news. <laughs> the good news <laughs> is, is that I am not a unicorn. <laughs> 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 and I don't mean that if, as the horse with the, with the horn on its head. Um, there are a lot of autistic BCBAs. I am, I am definitely the young one in the, in the community. I just am particularly loud and my learning history is it's okay to be loud and and I, I'm, I'm less punished yeah the younger generation are going to save us <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, <true. laughs> and there's there are a lot of autistic bcbas out there and there's and i think that's part of the reason we having this shift we're mm-hmm. having this shift is because um we're seeing younger generations coming in who have had tolerance training have had experience with this we have people who are coming in who have uh, are experiencing um what it's like to be autistic or adhd or all these other characteristics that typically were targeted by aba instead of and this is a pet peeve of mine instead of focusing on the function of the behavior worrying about the diagnosis which is outside the scope and competency yeah, totally. of ABA. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. why, why are we worried so much about the identifying this thing? And then the flip side of that, or the, to go along with that, I guess you could say is, and <clears throat> apparently I'm kind of a, a unicorn in this respect. I believe that um, there are two types of autism. There's autism spectrum disorder, which is the disorder, and then there's autism, the neurotype, and I and and you cannot be <clears throat> neurotype um, autism have autism spectrum disorder. You have to; it has to be both, and it's it's mm-hmm. about addressing the skills. Just like <clears throat> I went through some cognitive behavioral therapy for depression because I mm-hmm. experienced depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was able, thankfully was able to address without medication, which isn't to say that, that there's, that's a wrong way of doing it because mm-hmm. there are many ways to address it. And sometimes we need that extra support. Um, so do what the doctor is suggesting and try things out. But um, same ideas is that like depression is an, is an experience that we have mm-hmm. and depression can be a disorder and it's learning those skills to be able to address those things. And then are you cured of depression? Well, it depends on the depression we're talking about. If we're talking about depression disorder or um, clinical depression or uh, pervasive depression disorder, or all the different classifications, yes, you can be cured of that. But does that mean you're never going to experience being depressed? No, that's a part of well, And what does are. cured mean? I'm going to have a whole conversation about from behavior analytics perspective what does that even mean because yeah. that implies that you're going inside somebody <clears throat> change in some bio biology or something there exactly i don't know it's not a disease and and yeah. that's my argument too for asd and autism it's not a disease it's a it's a i i believe that first off about half of the things that are classified as asd should just be knocked off the list because 
seriously like if someone doesn't like looking at you in the eyes that shouldn't be a disorder mm -hmm. like i know people who are not on spectrum who don't like to make yeah. contact so that's that shouldn't be an issue and uh if having a special interest is a is a disorder component then i can mm -hmm. point to you to multiple football fans both american and european style football who are so obsessed about their team that they're always wearing their jersey mm -hmm. and, and and walking around and stuff and like well that's a special interest and they're really obsessed about it and they're perseverating on it and if their team loses they're having a really rough time does that mean that they have a disorder are they autistic or is that just mean that they're interested in something and that's okay um it's really trying to address the the issue which i think the majority of the issue with asd is a societal issue mm -hmm. of accepting and including people mm -hmm. of of having them being a part of the community and um, I would argue that if, if we can address that issue of inclusion and mm -hmm. accepting people for who they are um, and, and for what they experience, instead of trying to put our values on them and fix them, big air quotes there, mm -hmm. that instead, if we, if we focus on applying these concepts to ourselves, then instead of trying to fit inside this paradigm and, and, and squishing everybody into this little narrow box that we might think isn't so narrow, but it is really narrow that then we can see, Oh, you're experiencing what you're experiencing. I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. The only time when we really need to worry about that cross section is if that experiencing difference is causing harm. Mm -hmm. And, and even then, how much of that is actually harm that I'm perceiving versus actual harm? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, I, I fully agree with everything you're saying, but <laughs> all, and also, you know, I think it is, I think this, we're going back to the thing you talked about in the beginning where that moment to moment analysis of like, why am I doing what I want? Why am I doing this right now? <laughs> why, what should, what is what I'm doing helpful to this person? Um, short term, long term, and like, because it isn't an easy black and white rule situation here. Because there are individuals also, for example, who come to me and they they want help and they're asking me to help them. And I might not think that what that I might think that they're fine. And I have I'm like I think you're I don't think you need help, but they want the help, so I'm going to give it to them. Yes, mm -hmm. right. So. Um, and what they care about might be different from what I think they should care about. And I'm not there to tell them what to care about. <laughs> yeah. So, but, so I guess I'm thinking of like, even like little kids as well. Like when I'm working with typical kids, not, not uh, autistic kids per se, but like typically developing kids, you know, mm -hmm. parents, sometimes I have to tell the parents, actually, your kid shouldn't be choosing right now. You're the parent, right? You need to help this kid, but it's not about, um, I guess it's still about choice. I'm like, say you need to teach your child how to make choices. They're mm -hmm. six years old and they should not be ruling the house <laughs> right now. They should not be deciding what to eat, when to eat, who gets to eat where, who gets to wear what, who, you know, they should not, that is not workable. That's not healthy. Everyone's stressed out. We're seeing a lot of problems. Kids not going to school, kids not doing the things. You need to take charge at some point. So sometimes it is so about telling parents like, <laughs> I feel like you're attacking me. <laughs> uh, well, you got to teach your kids how to make choices and to notice how their behavior works. Like that's your job <laughs> as a parent. Otherwise, we just have a world of six year olds running around without parents if they didn't need them <laughs> um, parents exist for a reason 
So in that situation, it is appropriate for somebody to make decisions sometimes for another individual. Um, so it's not, anyway, I'm just thinking like it's not always it's, it's not always cut and dry and obvious mm -hmm. and clear. Like when should I make a decision about what's best and when sh when should I just let this person choose? Um, or how do I so maybe it's more about how do we create the context where people can choose? Um, and teach them how to choose and teach them how to figure out what they care about because we didn't even touch that but like kids learn how to value mm -hmm. it's a de they developmentally have to learn that it's you learn how to value and learn what you care about through experience right so we need to allow kids to have experiences that allow them to notice how things work and what they care about and what brings vitality to their life not tell them at six years old you care about education and you care about whatever like that's not that's not what yeah. valuing is about um it's a learned experience so i there's lots of things that are flying around there well, and, but yes and values shift over time um yes. you know like mm -hmm. we 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 learn and we grow we are i love i love this this perspective that that act gave me i am the being that observes and experiences so if <clears throat> if the axe um if the axe handle broke and you replace the axe handle and then a year later the axe head breaks and you replace the axe head is it the same axe mm -hmm. right it's a it's an interesting philosophical question and and technically speaking every seven years every single cell that we had is mm -hmm. in our body has been replaced so are we the same person well if, if we go into i am I, I am my experiences then the answer is no mm -hmm. but if we go into i am the 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 being that ex that observes and sees mm -hmm. and then takes from my experiences the answer is yes i am still the same person um Evelyn, real quick question. Do you know the author Terry Pratchett? I do. Do you know what? I read Terry Pratchett books my whole childhood, teenagehood, early I, teens, I guess. I love yeah. Terry Pratchett so much. And did you read the Tiffany Aching series? The, um, I, the I did Spice? not. I did Ooh. not. But you, I do know. I kind of think I know where you're going with this because <laughs> Terry Pratchett. Yes. So well, um, you in, get in on this because I'm uh, <laughs> the only person who's not read. Okay. Um, I'm going to put that on my Amazon list. <laughs> so the Tiffany Aching series, which starts with the hat full of sky, for those of you who, who would like to knew, do this, is, is Terry Pratchett is a satirical writer. He, his, his fantasy is, is hilarious. Um, but Tiffany Aching focused on young adult, uh, children, young adults writing mm -hmm. for, um, for kids to read and access. And I love that series so much, not just because the last book that Terry Pratchett published before he passed was um was a tiffany aching book and in that book he says goodbye and it was very tearful moment for me because uh i terry patrick was with me through basically my young uh, teenage years all the way through adulthood um but because he teaches how to diffuse and have self as context with tiffany and um, Tiffany is a, a little character who's a witch. And the, what makes her a witch is not magic. What makes her a witch is that she has first thoughts. And then she has second thoughts. And then she has third thoughts. So she has the first thought, I'm, I'm mad. 
And then she has a second thought that usually comes along, which is I'm mad because that person did this thing. And then the third thought is, Oh, I'm noticing that I'm mad. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I love that, that way of doing it. And, and, and the beauty of that, because there's a magic in noticing mm-hmm. and bringing it, I guess, kind of back to what was mentioned again, noticing includes the curiosity and listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had a feeling that you would know Terry Pratchett because yeah. not many people in the U S do, although it's, he's growing in its popularity, but, uh, it, I, I came across his books purely by accident because I was trying to escape from pain. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the ways I escaped through pain was through reading. And, and I found in a bin, um, with the cover torn off this book, that, that had the words Eric written on it and then crossed through it a line in red ink it wrote, was written Faust. And that was my very first book was the book Eric uh, <laughs> by Terry Pratchett. And, and it was so funny and wonderful. And yet um, these ideas can be taught so beautifully through so many different ways. And, it, and, and, and being rigid in how we teach it is, is, is an issue um, because I've worked to act into um, big emotions mm. when, when I, I, so a little boy that I worked with five years old, highly verbal, had some really bad experiences in his very short life and, and wouldn't want to tell that information just because I don't want to give personal identifying stuff, but just heartbreaking the experiences he has and I was a registered behavior technician assigned to work with him. And he has this big emotion that's happening. And instead of putting my values and putting my experiences on him, I just sat back and was curious. And, and I comforted and I was kind. And then I'd ask questions and Sometimes I would, I would do a little leading, like, you know, is it okay that you're mad? And he's like, no, it's not okay. I'm like, well, what if it is okay? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, there's a kind of component of teaching and leading there. But at the same time, I didn't tell him, yes, it's okay to be mad. It's, I said, yeah. well, what if it is okay? What if? Mm-hmm. And then, Curiosity. and then kind of acting as a guide down the path mm-hmm. that I wish I had had when I was his age. Mm-hmm to to see that maybe there's something more than the big thing that you're experiencing and mm-hmm. a lot of times i see people making fun of kids like i see little little pictures or videos being put up like mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the ones that stuck out to me is she's mad because i told her she could have the things that she wanted right you know a little little girl on the ground temper tantrum mm-hmm. and 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 i'm thinking to myself Okay, so you're you're kind of you're not kind of you're mocking this child for their experience, but this is a big emotion. This is the biggest emotion they probably felt up to, felt up to this point. So, what if instead of worrying about like oh it's not that big of a deal, we go oh, that's what you're experiencing right now. This is a part of your journey. So my job is instead of. T- picking up the phone and taking a picture and then posting it and shaming. What if it's, I see that you're having a hard time. 
and then asking some questions. Maybe not in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> maybe letting them come down a little bit first because that's that's kind of hard but that just that compassion um and that's that's the thing that i i keep on coming back to over and over again is regardless of the area that you're in whether you're a behavior analyst a cognitive behavioral therapist whether you're a student whether you're a parent whether you're the person experiencing which we all should be person experiencing no matter what we got to be in touch with that humanity Mm -hmm. that that willingness to have compassion because if we aren't then we're not in touch with ourselves we're we're avoiding our own experiences and also if we aren't then well some of the most horrible things that have happened on this planet have been when people haven't been in touch with their humanity things from sacrificing 20,000 people over a, 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 a month-long thing which has happened in multiple cultures across the world where it's like we're so stuck on this idea that the sun won't come up if we don't do this thing mm-hmm. to thinking that the other person who's different than me is the cause of all my woes and problems. And so therefore the only way to deal with this issue is to exterminate them. Mm-hmm. To that kid told a weird joke. He's weird. I don't like him. Let's show him who's boss. Mm-hmm. And then everything else in that area. So sorry, got a little poetic there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think Brian, you know, I'm thinking about ABA again, and part of the issue, or what I'm thinking about is it's never just about this moment, right? So when we, one of the issues I see is that behavior analysts can get stuck on the immediate ABC, and Mm -hmm. that's all they see. I asked a kid to do something, kids crying and refusing, that's all I care about, not thinking. Let's step back from this and think like, well, what is the history here? Like what, what's the bigger picture here? Like, why is this kid crying? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe this kid has a trauma history. Maybe this kid has, you know, a history of <laughs> some kind of aversive conditioning that means that this feels really hard for him. Maybe he's really little and he just has huge emotions and he's feeling sick today. And he also didn't eat breakfast and blah, blah, blah. So the compassion for me gets lost when you don't as well, when you don't zoom out and think what's the whole context here. And also what is the most important thing that I need to teach this kid right now? Is it more important for me to be like, I asked them to do something, they didn't do it. So I'm going to punish them for, I mean, that, let's face it, like removing all social attention is very punishing. Mm-hmm. So um, am I going, is it more important for me to be right and to not allow this kid to not do what I told them? Or is it more important to teach them that I can be compassionate, that's not, that I care about how they feel and they can have their big feelings and maybe this is hard for them and maybe they've had a hard history and they have a history of failure and not being successful or whatever. And it's important for me right now to be kind and to help this little kid be like, I know this is hard. <laughs> I know I asked you to do this and it's new and you wasn't in your plans and you didn't know what was going to happen and you don't know how to do it and you're feeling overwhelmed right now. So I'm going to help you when you're mm-hmm. ready. I can help. Let's do this together a much more compassionate response and you might actually teach the kids something important and something useful instead of just teaching them when you do this we're going to ignore you 
and people are going to go away. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to force you to do this thing. And we're going to make you feel like a failure because you didn't know how to do it or whatever mm-hmm. else we might, or the other messages we might be sending. So I, I guess I thank you for sharing that, Ryan. And that's where my head kind of went to again. Like we have to, we have to think contextually and bigger picture and mm. really like, what is it we're here to do in every moment? What is it we're here to do? And what do I want to teach this little person yeah, about just... how relationships work and how the world is? Sorry, Heather. Oh, no, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's the that's the whole idea behind that psychological flexibility. It's being mm-hmm. able to think that big and that small. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to think it almost simultaneously, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost not, you know, because we're, we're not going to be curious, be curious, right? So be like, <laughs> not just like, okay, I asked this kid to do this and they didn't do it. I want to be like, huh, this is a really big reaction to not to, right, that's happening right now. I want to be curious about that. What, what, is the, what does that tell me about this kid's history? What does that well, tell me about what's going on? Yeah, go ahead, Brian. And one of, no, you're okay. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that comes to mind with this is um, at the center that I work at, um, we have an expectation as a part of the daily schedule is chores because that's a life skill mm-hmm. and we do different chores. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> I noticed some rigidity in staff of how chores were being done. And so we were seeing a lot of big behaviors around that. And I modeled it for them. I showed them because the issue was you have to do the chore and then the staff member would just stand there and watch them do it. And I'm like, but, but how is that human? Yeah. How would you feel? <laughs> like, like how would you feel if somebody was like, do your chores and then just stood there and like staring at you? Yeah. And, and so like, I, I was like, how about instead of saying do your chore or it's a time to do a chore, you say, can you help me? Mm-hmm. Or can I help you? Or mm-hmm. let's do this together. And mm-hmm. we saw a massive drop in the behaviors mm-hmm. around that. And one staff member came to me and complained. They're like, I'm not going to say who. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they, they came to me and they were like, I'm doing most of the chore. And I'm like, so? Like, they're, they're a tween. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're between the ages of, of, of 9 and 13, right? They're, they're, they're learning and experiencing like maybe the expectation for you as a kid was do the chore or else mm-hmm. is that really the best way of doing it? Or is it, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to do 90% you do 10%. And then we gradually fade it back. And mm-hmm. it's now it's, I'm doing 80% and you're doing 20 and it, it keeps on fading to the point where it's like, mm-hmm. and I've, and I've done this with kids before where like, I fade it back and, and sometimes the fade is, is contrived and sometimes the fade is mm-hmm. more natural. One time mm-hmm. it was like, Hey man, I, I want to help you. So how about I do this thing right here? And then, and then you do the rest, but I have to actually get caught up on my note real quick mm-hmm. um, because I have to write my note every day. So how about you do that? And then if you get stuck, you can ask me for help. So it's, again, it's back to that flexibility mm-hmm. thing. It's not saying, mm-hmm. Oh, I won't help you after this. It's, and um, after that, the the child that experienced success without needing help. 
Yeah, Think about I, what you're teaching there. Like you're teaching also, what do we want to model for these kids? Do we want these kids to grow up and order people around and be like, you have to do this for me? We don't want that. We want pro-social. Pro-sociality is like showing up for me right now, Brian, but yeah. so beautiful in the way that you're teaching there is also teaching how kids how to be collaborative and how to work with others and relationship building and all that pro-social stuff in there. Well, and um, I'm teaching staff how to do that too yeah. because they're yeah. seeing that. And I've had staff, um, actually only one person tell me that after, after that, like things have gotten easier at home with their kids because mm-hmm. they're taking that approach. And mm-hmm. it's like, Ooh, I love this domino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let it roll. Parallel process is what they call it outside in psychology world. But yeah, you do, you us modeling for parents, what we want them to be doing with their kids and what we're doing with staff being what we're doing with kids. So I love that very much. And you know, that's, if we take, I think that I was lucky growing up that my dad, so sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that I, I, being a kiddo with ADHD who would get very overwhelmed very quickly on, on tasks that to me, it was just a whole mountain instead of a molehill. <laughs> but I, I would always just get so anxious on weekends when it was time to do my chores. And my dad started using a phrase for me. And at first it started with a picture and then he faded that back to where he could just give me that verbal prompt. But it was, how do we eat an elephant? one bite at a time and Mm -hmm. being a little kid I just I loved that analogy of oh I'm going to eat this elephant but that that helped me so much um Mm -hmm. and I think maybe having that support growing up that that's helped me with some of the kiddos that that I've worked with putting myself in their shoes that that maybe we may think going in and just sweeping up this little mess in the floor is such a simple task it's so easy why are you being so air quote defiant right Mm -hmm. now when to this kid it it can be so incredibly overwhelming Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yep curiosity Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the other thought I'm having is, Brian, when you're talking about your staff, I wanted to be like, well, is it better to be right? Do you want to, would you rather be right than effective? Because we're talking about choosing. You can be right and have all these problem behaviors and not be effective, or you can mm-hmm. choose to be effective and just eat that feeling that you're having right now. <laughs> like make space for that feeling of like, ah, why aren't they doing what I tell them to do? Um, yeah. Well, and that, that, that's, that, that comes up to another thing that I, I try to focus on. Um, first off, for the behavior analysts out there, I'm going to use a Freudian term and you're just going to have to deal with it. I'm okay <laughs> with it. My ego is not as important as the person. Mm-hmm. The story, mm-hmm. or to use a, 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 more, um, a more behavior analytic slash relational frame approach, the, the rules govern behavior that I am connected to and the story that I tell myself mm-hmm. is not as important as the person. Correct. Or and, it's not, if you cling to that, you're not going to be effective. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. the reason why in my experience, so there's probably somebody out there who's not like this, but in my experience, the reason why behavior analysts become behavior analysts is because they care. They want to be caring. They want to help. They want to make the world better. And so they tell themselves, we tell ourselves, I tell myself the story that I am there to help. I am there to to be there to to make things better. And that's a wonderful story. But it's a really, really, really 
damaging story if the story is being told to the detriment of being curious about the current moment. Mm -hmm. That's where trauma happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where Mm -hmm. abuse occurs is Mm -hmm. when we're so stuck, so fused, I guess you could say to the story Mm -hmm. of I'm a helper that you can justify the choices that you're making Mm -hmm. instead of being inquisitive and going, Ooh, is that a good idea? Or in what way? Yeah, so responding flexibly to that rule, Brian. So in what way is it, can I be helpful? Mm-hmm. In the service of what? <laughs> and I, it's important to me to be a helper, but in what way? What does that look like in this context, in this moment with this particular person? And I agree with you stepping back and noticing, we have to be noticing what we're responding to in that moment. Not, and we're not just responding to the kid in front of us. We're responding to all our stuff, all our stories, all our rules we have. Um, and we need, and that's that present moment awareness, like being aware of what it, what is it I'm responding to? And is that actually what I want to be about right now? Yeah, I fully agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Is there any other things that you want to touch on today or do you feel like I, is- I guess I'd just like to ask a question. Um, yes, please. I, I guess I'm curious as to how I want to ask, I'm like, why do I want to ask this question? I guess part of it's reassurance seeking probably the function, which we can, you can say, I'm not going to reassure you. But <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I want to, it's important to me. It's also values driven. It's really important to me how what I'm saying lands with people. And I know I cannot control how my words function for everybody because none of us have have the same history. Mm-hmm. But I guess, how is this landing for you? And um, is there anything you want to say? Is there anything that I need to hear? <laughs> I guess is any feedback or anything I need to hear about the way that I've been talking today or anything i need to learn i was gonna say like after we ended the recording but i will totally say it during recording as well i was like you brought up a lot of thoughts for me that i had never considered before so personally for me you were able to uh branch out some of the thoughts that i've had and some feelings that i've had that i didn't realize that i was having um surrounding the use of act and uh and being like oh you know what i I do remember feeling uncomfortable when I heard someone do this thing. How can I like be more effective in that situation? So personally, I was going to say that I thought that was really wonderful. And I thought you did so in a very uh, open and compassionate way. Uh, So that landed really well with me personally. So um, as of the recording of this, um, a podcast that I recorded with the Global Autism Project came out and I have learned that it's important for me to listen to what I say in the podcast because it helps me reflect deeper. It's the third thought approach of, mm-hmm. of like, I was the speaker. Now I need to be the observer and I need to mm-hmm. observe not just myself, but the other person mm-hmm. as, as I'm talking with them. So I listened to that. And I'm glad I did because um, I made some very important points about ownership responsibility, very similar to what we did here, but maybe more in depth. Um, 
and I had some insights that I had forgotten that I had had and that sort of thing. But the, but the thing that, that really stuck with me was that after the podcast was done, the host recorded her thoughts at the end of the podcast and she reflected on them. And one of those things was, you know, the, the ownership, taking responsibility, committed values and action type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she took the time to say, I am committing to do better. I'm committing to use these things and change. And that hit really close to home for me because kind of bringing it again, back to the earlier beginning topic, that imposter syndrome, I, I feel that a lot. Mm. And I'm really good at faking it till I make it. <laughs> uh, one, one would argue that that was most of my life because most of my life I masked. Mm-hmm. Um, not the ABA mask, the autism community masked. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who are behavior analysts. <laughs> um, but that helped me to see that regardless of, of the experiences that I'm having, I've been able to influence at least one person to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for the, asking that question and giving me this opportunity because same thing as what Heather said, you've, you've given me things to think about and to, to learn how to differentiate. So that way, like, have there been times when I have told the person what they're supposed to be thinking, or I think that there's what I, what I think they're supposed to be thinking and act. Yeah. That's happened a couple of times. I would say that it doesn't happen often, but now I'm more aware of that. And um, also now I'm seeing more of the value in the use of act for training parents and focusing a little bit less on the, um, minutia <laughs> of of the ABA language and focusing a little bit more on, oh, I need to trust my parents mm-hmm. of my students. I need to trust them. And instead of worrying about throwing all these terms at them, instead I need to act as that guide just like I did for the little boy. Yeah. Be curious. Just showing them that there's there's a way that they can access the thing that they want because all the research that I've read, all the human psychology that I've delved into, and I don't keep myself limited to ABA. And I think that that's bad. And I, and I really want to encourage any behavior analysts um, to please read beyond our field because that's really important. But the thing that's come back from me from, from all the books and all the articles that I've read is humans want to be good. There are abnormal psychology situations that are kind of different, but those are the exception. Humans want to be good. And where, what I love about behaviorism is we start, we start by asking what the environment is doing to influence behavior instead of starting internally and then going outwardly. So that's the thing I love about it. Um, but we're a part of our environment. Yep. I'm a part of my environment. It's not, it's not, it stops mm-hmm. once my skin starts, the environment is. And other people are too, right? The yeah. relational, the relational piece, like behavior and ABA is relational. You yes. cannot do ABA without relating to another person. It's impossible. Right? Exactly. You'd just be talking into a vacuum. 
Um, so I hear you, Brian, that's so important to me too. Like other humans are also part of the context and the environment. And you as a behavior analyst are relating to another human being. You are part of that person's context and you're the change agent there, right? You are the context that's got to change. You need to change, not the person, but you need to do things differently in order to see change. Um, And we have to care about that relational piece and humans are social mammals. So that pro-social piece that you're talking about, humans want to be good. I would say humans are social beings and they, they ultimately want to connect with other people. That is so important. Um, And we don't nurture that enough or think about that enough um, as behavior analysts often when we really should, it's the most important thing. And relationship building is, is central Mm -hmm. because if we don't Mm -hmm. build that relationship, then there's no trust. Totally. And, 100%. <laughs> and and like the, the the problematic ABA that's been described, like that where the kid comes in and they're immediately putting demands on them and they're immediately, this is what you're supposed to do. You have to sit at this table and point to these cards and do these things and all that. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's not therapy. <laughs> so it's don't torture. do that to parents either. Don't do that to parents either. Don't do that <laughs> to parents. Either. I'm in a unique situation of now I'm a parent to an almost three-year-old beautiful little boy that you saw come crawl on my lap a minute ago. Who then I said, oh God, he's having another meltdown. <laughs> uh, we have sensory processing disorder. He's getting evaluated for ASD diagnosis. So it's very good. Even what you were saying about parents was very eye-opening to even if I do have the tools that I need over here and I need to trust that more mm-hmm. uh, versus always once again imposter syndrome am I even a good enough mom over here mm-hmm. am I going to be good enough to be able to parent him through some of these things but that I don't know that I really liked the way that that you put that and that felt very reassuring to me not even taking off my professional BCBA hat and just wearing my mom hat um, but it was very meaningful. So thank you for that. Um, can, I, can I say how this felt for me? Please do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For about feelings. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> I, you're very kind. I, I'm having, I worry a lot about talking over people. So that's showing up. So I apologize if I interrupted or talked over anybody um, okay. today. And I want everyone to know that I know I do that and I'm working on it. So I continue to work. I commit to continue to working on listening and not interrupting and talking over, which partly is a Northern Irish culture thing, by the way. We all talk at the same time. My part, it drives my partner bonkers. She's like, <laughs> I can't be with your family because you're all talking at the same time and listening at the same time. I don't know how to do that, but I'm working on it. So I, I apologize for, for any time I interrupted or didn't listen. I'm, I'm working on that. But um, I, I really, I'm just so appreciative of, of you creating this space, Brian, and also you, Heather, both of you together to, it feels like a very big privilege to um, have you talk with me today and um, generally also for you to show up as well and just feel quite humbled to hear your experiences. And um, it's, I really, I really, I'm generally, I'm with you. I'm really trying to do better And I also, you know, think all the time about the way I was trained in the beginning and some of, and I really think about, oh my God, how do these kids think about their experience now? Now they have language, they're going to remember and talk about their experience in a way that's different. And I don't feel okay with some of the practices at all. I, 
it makes me and I'm happy that it makes me feel uncomfortable and I can hold that and remember that and do better and I Mm -hmm. really I'm gonna I'm getting emotional now but I really (laughs) it really matters to me um, that I um, have this opportunity to talk with you to hear your experience and um, to to think about how we can maneuver our field. I mean, I, I get in conflict all the time where sometimes I think I, can, I just don't want to be part of this field. I'm actually kind of ashamed. Um, and I, I think I'll just go to psychology and like run over there and like not be part of this because it's really hard. But then I also, but I stay, I choose to stay. And I want to take that responsibility that you're talking about, Brian, and acknowledge like, delve around in there and try to figure out like what can I do and what does this mean and how am I practicing and I do think the science I do believe in the science and that there's it is a compassionate everyone's behavior makes sense type science and um but it but it's practiced in such in a way that's often in a way that's very inconsistent with the print with what I think it should be about and is abusive and causes trauma and we are like it's a huge responsibility that we have as behavior analysts we're tasked with shaping language for example on how and and so we're basically shaping someone's ability to reflect on what we're doing and Mm -hmm. to be traumatized basically so even if a kid is not experiencing something as traumatic at the time as soon as they can think about that experience and reflect on it, they may very well notice and experience trauma over and over and over every time they think about that thing. Mm -hmm. And we're basically not thinking about that when we're shaping language and when we're working with kids and and that that double-edged sword that we talked about are the two sides of the same coin of language, right? That Mm -hmm. suffering comes with language too. And we are, we are shaping kids experiences and, and often they've had, or I know I'm waffling now, but I know often the kids have, have already had really bad experiences or have had um, difficult learning histories. And we're just like, I'm not going to care about that. <laughs> I'm just going to care about right now. And that's hugely problematic too. Or even saying things like, well, trauma is not my business. That's out of my scope. It, it is. You're not there to treat the trauma, but you are treating behavior that is happening after trauma. And that is your business to care about that. That is part of that person's context. Absolutely matters in terms of how you design your interventions mm-hmm. or a parent, for example, I need to care about a parent's mental health issues. I need to care about a parent's substance abuse issues, marriage issues, um, whatever they're going through is part of their context. Whatever they've been through is also part of their context. And so when I'm coming to work with them, all of what I'm seeing now is behavior that's happening (laughs) in that context. And so I need to, maybe I'm not there to fix their marital problems or maybe I'm not there to fix um, whatever else is going on in their history, but I am there working with the behaviors that are happening right now. So I need to care about that stuff and make space for it in my interventions and be sensitive to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, 1,000%. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. I went off on a tangent, but really what I want to say is thank you so much. And I feel very humbled and uh, appreciative. And I learn a lot also from these conversations. And it keeps me oriented back to what matters. 
And I really want to think about, especially I've been really thinking about how I talk, like how I'm using my words when I talk about these subjects and talk about people that I work with, my clients. And, and am, I, am I doing this to them? Am I doing that thing to them where I'm talking about them like they're lesser than? Or am I doing that thing where I'm not, where, where I'm asserting a power dynamic or whatever that I don't mm. want to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for keeping me oriented to that, I guess. It's it's been an honor, and and I'm I'm really grateful to be in in a world where there are people filled with folks who want to think like this, who are trying to find ways of 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 finding that connection, and it gives me hope. Yeah, um, I feel like this needs to be a wave that needs to continuously be happening. Um, because you know we're we're our generation, and there's a generation that follows. Mm-hmm. And you know this we history goes through cycles. That's one of the reasons I love history so much is because there's behaviors that we cyclical see cyclical things happening. Um, so this I don't think that we're the first to go through this discovery. Um, <laughs> certainly not going to be the last, <laughs> but but it's important that it be continuous part of the conversation because. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I want the world to be better. I want it to be a place where people can thrive, mm-hmm. where people can grow. And um, I guess I want it. Uh, I, I'm trying to be the hero that I needed when I was a kid. And, I, and, it, too, and it, seems like, yeah, <laughs> it seems like you're doing the same. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's good. And I think that's, that's a big part of our values. So Thank you for taking the time to to come on to the show. And with that, I think we'll, it's a good spot, spot to, to wrap up. So mm-hmm. um, just a reminder folks that um, the Act Natural podcast is an open source education material. That means that this um, in whole or in part can be used towards um, continuing education and in improving understanding. And um, please use it. Please share it. Um, please download it, cut it, reuse it, that sort of thing. That's very important. Um, but please also make sure to cite back to the original source. That's the only requirement that we have. So that way more people can come back and find it. Um, <clears throat> we're grateful for you joining us today, um, both our, our guests and, um, and our listeners. And uh, please have a wonderful day and act natural. <laughs> <laughs>